Today's scripture comes from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had all come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the time or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. You may be seated. While you're being seated, let me pray for us. Father, uh, would you speak to us by your word this morning? Um, Would the seed that is scattered fall on hearts that are ready to receive And uh, would it bear fruit in our lives? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name is John. And um, I want to start with a quick family update because that's what I do when I'm up here. Um, My in-laws have been with us for two weeks and they've left. Finally. Am I right? (laughs) No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Uh, they left on Thursday. They went back to the UK, and uh, we had a lovely time. But frankly, they they spoil my kids, as you could expect. Uh, lots of presents, like a present every day. It was a bit much. Lots of ice cream, um, and now just they're gone. <laughs> as you can imagine, it's a bit of a shock to the system for the kids, my young children. Not least because of the sugar rush crash that they're experiencing as we. Uh, slowly wean them off of Dairy Queen and back to vegetables. Um, But it's been emotional, um, especially for my kids, because they're trying to understand it all, right? They're trying to understand what is going on. Um, We've been trying hard, Sarah and I, to explain it to my children, explain things like, like, why did Nana and Grandad decide selfishly to live so far away from us? Like, why would they do that? um, seriously, it's been lovely, but um, it's, it's necessarily disruptive, isn't it? Um, we know this, don't we, that the joy of having guests with us is always matched with the pain of seeing them go. Now, uh, maybe the opposite for you and your in-laws, uh, the pain of having them with you is matched with the joy <laughs> of seeing them go, but uh, I love Sarah's parents, for the record. Um, And it's always tough because we have family visiting us periodically and it's always tough when they have to leave. Now, I give you this update, not simply so that you know how to pray for me and my family, but but also because in our text today, there is a similar departure. There's a similar exit, one that I'm sure was as disruptive, more disruptive, and maybe more confusing for the disciples than for my children as the in-laws left. 
Today, we are looking at the moment where Jesus, who had been with his disciples for a period of about three years, is now leaving and ascending into heaven. Now, a bit of background of the book that we're in, because we're, we're jumping all over the place in this series, but um, the book of Acts is, uh, you, you may or may not be familiar with it, it it's the second part of a, of a two-part work by the same author, a guy called Luke. And it's the reason why, as we read this morning in Acts 1, verse 1, it says, in the first book, O Theophilus, Theophilus is who he's writing to, in the first book, O Theophilus, with all that Jesus Gan to do and teach. The first book he's referring to there is the Gospel of Luke. And so if you thumb back a few pages in your Bible before Acts, you're going to see the Gospel of Luke. And that's the first part. And so the book of Acts is not the start of a story. It's really the continuation of a story that the author Luke has been telling. And what we find at this point, at the start of the book of Acts, is a turning point in the story. It's a new chapter and it's the reason why we're in Acts today, because we have reached a turning point in the series that we're in. Now, for those of you that have been with us over the summer, you'll know that we're in a series called Living by Faith, Living by Faith. And so we've been taking a brisk jaunt through the Bible, looking at various characters uh, in the Bible. And so... Um, for the first few weeks, we looked at the Old Testament, didn't we? We looked at Old Testament characters and how they lived by faith as they looked forward to a Messiah, as they looked forward to Jesus. And over the last few weeks, we've looked at Jesus, right? George and Sam took us through the book of Hebrews, and we looked directly at Jesus. And now, for the next few weeks in our series, we're going to look at living by faith in light of Jesus. Now that Jesus has come, what does living by faith look like? And Acts is a perfect place to go because Acts documents this moment of transition between seeing Jesus and not seeing Jesus. Between seeing Jesus, as we have done in Hebrews, and not seeing Jesus. And so today, what I want to do is I, I want to take us through this transition, do the, the, the handover, as it were, into this new phase in our series. And I want us to see that at every turn, we need faith. At every turn in the story, we need faith. And so for the note writers among you, three points. Number one, faith in what they saw. Faith in what they saw. Number two, faith for what we will see. And three, faith while we don't see. So one, faith in what they saw. Second, faith for what we will see. And third, faith while we don't see. Number one, faith in what they saw. Verse one opens as we read. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He, that is Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. One of the misconceptions of Christianity that is prevalent in the world, but maybe even is prevalent among us, is that faith is opposed to seeing. 
that faith is opposed to seeing. One of the verses that we, we use to justify this position is 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that we know well. I'm sure you could all quote it back to me. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. It's the sort of thinking that has led to the broad cultural assumption that for those of us that are religious, those of us that have faith, that live by faith, there is a willful ignorance of everything that is obviously apparent. There is a willful ignorance of everything that is right in front of our eyes, an ignorance to see what is in front of our eyes. And this is maybe most evident in the supposed conflict between science, which is built upon empirical evidence, and religion that supposedly ignores what it sees because, well, we live by faith and not by sight. Now, I'm going to suggest that this is more of a relevant topic for a previous generation because our culture wars have moved on to whole new horizons, right? We're, we're, there's new frontiers at the moment in what is topical and what is being discussed. But I think it would be fair to say that the so-called science versus religion, faith versus sight conflict has impacted our lives in some way. Maybe it's impacted your life, how you think maybe, how your friends think or your co-workers think, what your friends think about your faith. Or what you think about your friend's faith. What I want to suggest this morning is that Luke, the author of Luke and Acts, seems to be making the exact opposite point. He seems to be making the exact opposite point. Not that faith is opposed to sight, but that the Christian faith, Christianity, is based on something that a group of people saw. Luke opens his first book, the Gospel of Luke. He says this in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, there he is again, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke here is, is compiling eyewitness accounts of the evidence of Jesus' life and the disciples' lives. Why? In order that we might have certainty that what is being taught is true. And now at the start of Acts, his second book, the second part of this two-part work, he says this, that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Here's the point. Seeing was important for Luke. The author of Luke and Acts, seeing was important for Luke as he collated the evidence of Jesus' life and his teaching, of his miracles and his sermons, of his death and his resurrection. He was gathering eyewitness accounts of all that had occurred. Seeing was important. And maybe even more telling for us is that seeing was important, obviously, to Jesus. Look at verse 8 in our text today. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my 
witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, the word witness there, it means eyewitness. We see, uh, we see uh, at the back end of Luke's gospel, he's saying, I've done all of these things of which you are witnesses of them. And so because you have seen these things, you are going to go out and testify to them. Because you have seen and heard, you are going to be those who bear witness about me. And this is how the apostles, they saw themselves. This is how the first disciples, they saw themselves. Peter, when he's at Pentecost, and the Spirit has been poured out, and he preaches probably the second greatest sermon that's ever preached. Sermon on the Mount, greatest sermon. Acts 2, it says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. John, in, in 1 John, he opens his letter, that which was from the beginning. He's talking about Jesus, the word that was made flesh. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And you'll remember, if you remember this far back in our First Corinthians series, it was important for Paul that he had seen him when he's defending his apostleship. He says, have I not seen the Lord Jesus? Christ City, our faith, the Christian faith, is built upon what they saw, or more precisely, who they saw. On the eyewitness testimony of the first followers of Jesus, those who had seen his miracles, those who had heard his teaching, those who had witnessed his death, and now those who had seen him risen from the grave. What we have in the New Testament is the testimony of these witnesses. And so Christianity, far from being anti-empirical, is essentially empirical. Now, the foundation of our faith is this truth that the invisible God has made himself visible to us in Christ. That God has borne witness to himself. He's done so broadly in creation. He's done so partially through his people Israel, but he does so ultimately in his son Christ as God comes to us and dwells among us. And the disciples, they had seen him just as I can see you now. They have heard him just as you can hear me now. Christ City, our God is a self-revealing God. This is the reason why we don't get to make up who he is, right? We don't get to decide in this room, like, who, who is God? God has revealed himself to us. We don't worship the unknown God. We worship the God who made himself known to us in Jesus. And they had seen him, and it was important that they saw him so that we, church, might have certainty, that we might be sure of all that he did and accomplished when he came. Here's the question. Then why do we need faith? If it's all about seeing, as Luke seems to emphasize, why, why do we need faith? If God has shown himself to us, why do we need faith at all? Well, I think the, the first answer to this is a real obvious one, and it's this. We need faith not because seeing isn't important, but because seeing is insufficient. We need faith not because seeing isn't important, but because seeing is insufficient. Like, we cannot see the events of the past. We may see some evidence of it, but we can't see 
Evidence of the past. It may sound obvious, but our sight, your sight, is a limited faculty. There's a sort of humility that comes when we consider our knowing that is based on our seeing. We know, don't we, that, that while we have some evidence of the past, we are mostly, and this is true generally, we are mostly required to trust, to have faith in the testimony of others to things that have happened. It's true of all historical events. Most of the events in history, you know, happened by trusting, by having faith in their testimony. And so while Luke and the other New Testament authors detailed the events of Jesus' life, they, they, they painstakingly collected the eyewitness accounts in order that we might have certainty that he lived, that he died, that he rose again, that he ascended into heaven. It is by faith, Christ City, that we trust their testimony. It's by faith. We need faith, not because seeing isn't important, but because we didn't see. We need faith to believe God's self-revelation in the past. That might be an obvious statement, but actually I think we could take it even further. I think we can say this. We need faith even if we were there to see. We need faith even if we were there to see. Think about this. There were lots of people that witnessed the life of Jesus. There were lots of people around who saw him working powerfully through miracles. There were lots of people that witnessed all that he did and said, but some of them worshipped him as God and some of them crucified him as a criminal. They both saw some of them worshipped him as God and some of them crucified him as a criminal. In, in Matthew 13, Jesus is telling parables and the disciples, they, they, they ask the question, they're like, why do you always speak in parables? Which is hilarious. Why do you always speak in parables? And then, and then Jesus quotes Isaiah back to them and he says, seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear. And then he says to his disciples, but, but blessed are your eyes for they see. And blessed are your ears, for they hear. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that lots of people see the work of God. Lots of people see God's revelation. God has revealed himself. The work of God is before our eyes, but you need eyes to see it. God revealed himself in Christ and they needed eyes to see it. The Oxford scientist, Dr. Peter Atkins, he's a notorious atheist, and he was once asked the question, what would it take for him as a scientist who bases his knowledge on empirical evidence, what would it take for him to believe in the existence of God? And, and he couldn't think of an answer. He said, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I don't think there's anything. And, then, and so he was probed further. Okay, okay, but what if one night the stars in the sky were to move and realign to read in the sky, God exists? And he said, I, I'd probably think a trick was being played on me. I said, okay, um, what if God, when you were in your bed at night, appeared to you before you and said, I'm God, you're not? He said, I, I probably think my brain was malfunctioning. Here's the thing. You see what's happening? 
He's so committed to his belief, his faith, that there is no God, that no amount of evidence could persuade him that there might be. No amount of empirical evidence could persuade him that there might be a God. It's sad, really, but I think it illustrates the point that I'm trying to make quite well, that his prior commitment had determined that he could not see, that he could not see the work of God. It's not simply about seeing. It's about having eyes to see. That's what faith is. That's what faith is. Faith is a precondition to seeing the work of God among us. So we need faith to believe in the eyewitness testimony of the Bible. We need faith to believe in in the testimony that has come in the past because we weren't there and we didn't see it. But you know what? The eyewitnesses, they also needed faith. They needed faith so that they would have eyes to see what God was doing among them. And Christ said, we need faith to have eyes to see what God is doing among us. Point one, faith in what they saw. Faith in what they saw. Point two, faith for what we will see. In verse nine, it says this. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. These verses, 9 to 11, this is the turning point that I was talking about. The turning point in the story, that the turning point maybe even in the New Testament, uh, it's a turning point in history from seeing to not seeing. From seeing to not seeing. Luke's emphasis, which is on, on witnesses and evidence and proof and seeing, is now met with they don't see him. But there's a promise. Seeing is met with not seeing, but there's a promise. The disciples who did see, now don't see. They're left with all that we have. They have to live now with what we have. Having seen him, they now don't see him. And they have to live with what we have, which is a promise. And it's a hope based on a promise, a promise that one day this Jesus who had been among them would one day come back. It's a hope that this Jesus who was raised from the dead, that they saw, that they heard, that they had touched with their hands, who is now ascended and exalted to the right hand of the Father, would one day come back for them. And this promise, Christ City is the single greatest hope of the New Testament authors and I think the single greatest overlooked truth of the Christian faith. It's the single greatest hope of the early Christians. It's what fueled the early church. It's what's fueled the church. In Christ City, it's our single greatest hope. When Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, walk by faith and not by sight, you know what he's talking about there? He's talking about this hope. We walk by faith and not by sight because our earthly bodies, they're, they're, they're sort of 
rotting away and becoming more decrepit. Some of us feel that more than others. And one day, he says, they will be destroyed. But he says, the mortal what is it, will be swallowed up in life. He's talking about the promise of Jesus coming again, the promise of the resurrection, the promise of his return. For those of you that have been following Kendra in, in memorizing First Peter, I see you. Well done. You know what I'm talking about because that promise is in here, right? First Peter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, the last time Jesus coming again. This is the great hope of the church. This is the unique story that we have, an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance in Christ. That one day our fading bodies that will one day be destroyed will be restored and renewed in resurrection power. In Paul's language, will be swallowed up in life. That one day all wrongs will be made right because God is coming back to judge. All sufferings will cease. That one day we will be reunited with Jesus. That we will see him face to face. This was their hope, Christ City, and this is our hope. But when I'm honest with myself, it can feel like a real strained hope sometimes. A real distant hope. Almost like it's so incredible that it doesn't feel credible. In my honest moments by myself, I think to myself, can this, can this really be true? It seems way too good to be true. For me, it provokes the question, what right do I have to be confident that this will happen? What right do I have to be confident that this will happen, that there will be life after death? That in the end, all things will turn out good. That I will one day, that we will one day see Jesus face to face. The answer that I've come to I, is, is simple, but I, I think it's true. <laughs> And it's this, because when God says something, he always does it. When God says something, he always does it. Christ City, when God says something, he always does it. God is always faithful to fulfill his promises. That's the assurance that we have. It's not based on how credible it feels. It's not based on how close it feels or how real it feels or it's based on who God is. It's based on the faithfulness of God. And that's the pattern that we see in Scripture. Promise after promise, fulfillment after fulfillment. Even when the promise feels so far-fetched, even when the hope feels like hoping against hope, that's where the phrase comes from. Abraham, as he hoped for a son. 
Hoping against hope, something that feels so outrageous, just as the disciples felt that it was so outrageous that Jesus would rise from the dead, and now he has fulfilled it. That's the pattern. When he says it, he does it. Christ is our entire faith. Our faith for the future is built entirely upon his faithfulness to fulfill his promises. We don't have faith for all the things that we make up. We have faith for the things that he has promised that he will do. If he said it, he'll do it. So we need faith to believe in the testimony of what they saw. And we need faith to believe in the promises of what we will one day see. It's a glorious hope. And we can be sure that it will happen based on the faithfulness of God. But what about today? What about in the time in between? What about as we live in between these two times of seeing, as it were, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, what they saw and what we will one day see, what does living by faith look like today here in Vancouver? Last point, faith while we don't see. Faith while we don't see. Um, One of the errors we can make when we think about Jesus ascending into heaven when Jesus was leaving his disciples, is to think that he would be absent from them. To think that he would be absent from them. We can think that it's similar to my in-laws, right, who were with us, and then they left us, and then we hope that they will come again. Jesus was with them, and then he left them, and then they're just hoping that he's going to come again. I think that's the wrong way to think about what is happening at this point in the story. What's interesting is that in Matthew's account of Jesus' last words to his disciples, before he leaves, he says this. He says, he will be with them always to the end of the age. What? So Jesus, while he's leaving them, says he will never leave them. What is going on? I think the clue starts for us in verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Do you see what he's saying? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying he's going, but the Holy Spirit is coming. He's going. But the Holy Spirit is coming. You see, this this moment in time is not a transition from God being present with them to God being absent from them. This moment is a transition from God dwelling among them in Jesus to God now dwelling within them by His Spirit. Jesus didn't abandon His disciples. The plan was always that, that Christ would be exalted to the right hand of the Father and that in so doing, He would pour out His Spirit So that the very presence of God would not only be with them, but would go with them wherever they went. That's what's happening here. You see, Jesus had accomplished all that he had come to accomplish among them. But Christ said, you need to know this. He had not accomplished all that he was going to do in and through them. Look again at how Luke opens the book of Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. You see that? What he began to do. The implication is Jesus has more to do. Christ, we need to to know this. 
In one sense, Jesus had completed his work. Jesus had completed his work. In another sense, he was just getting started. The work of salvation on the cross for our salvation was finished. He said it, didn't he? It is finished. But the work of bringing this good news of salvation to the world had only just begun. The victory of the kingdom of God had been secured for us on the cross. He's won. But the work of drawing a lost world into that kingdom had only just begun. Christ City, I hope you know this. There is still work to do. There's still work to do. So what's this work that we're called to do? What is Jesus continuing to do by his spirit today here in Vancouver? Let me give you two answers from the text. There's lots, but let me give you two. We haven't got time. Number one, first, Jesus by his spirit is going to work in his church. He's going to work in us. Verse 4, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The first command he gives to his disciples is to wait. Is to wait for the Spirit of God to be poured out on them, because before they go, God was going to do a work in them. And he was going to continue to do a work in them as he filled them with his spirit. Christ City, when we place our hope in Jesus, God by his spirit indwells us. That's what happens. When we trust in Jesus, God by his spirit baptizes us in the spirit. And as we walk by the spirit day in, day out, he is going to work in us. The primary work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian is to assure us of all that Christ has accomplished on our behalf, to seal us for that day that we look forward to, and to make us, as we go, look more and more like Jesus. To make us look like Jesus. Paul in Galatians calls it the fruit of the Spirit. So that we, church, might be more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, more kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled, that we might look more and more like Jesus. The call of the Christian life is to allow the Spirit to conform us and transform us into the image of Christ. So first, Jesus by His Spirit is going to work in us, the church. Second, Jesus by His Spirit is going to work through us for the good of the world. Through us for the good of the world. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The second command that he gives to his disciples is to go. After waiting to go, when the Spirit is poured out, you who have witnessed me are to bear witness to me. That's the call of the church. It's not just for the eyewitnesses. It's also for us to bear witness, to testify about the goodness of God, to testify about the good news that we have received in Jesus. The word we sometimes use that lots of us don't like is to evangelize. 
to communicate this good news to others in word and deed, in us and through us, waiting and going, inward renewal in the church, in among us, in this community, outward power so that we would go from this place to our neighbors, to the world, and to share this good news with our city, in and through us. I suggest that Christians and church communities, and maybe we can do a bit of self-diagnosis here, focus on one or the other of those things. They're stronger on one or the other. It's like they've got a stronger arm, right? A preferential side. Some churches, they focus a lot on inward renewal. They focus in on themselves. They're constantly allowing the Spirit of God to work in them, but they rarely go outside of their doors and allow the Spirit of God to work through them. It's all inwards and not outwards. Other churches, they're they're desperate to get out into the world. They want to go and make friends with everyone. They want to share this good news that they had, but they haven't allowed the good news to speak to them. It's all outwards and not inwards. Christ City, we need to be a both and. We need to be a both and, church. I like to think of it like this. If we focus as a church on just ourselves, inward, Spirit of God is working in these walls, and we never go out and evangelize, we never touch our neighbors, or we never, we never speak to anyone outside of these walls, we're going to be like a stagnant pond where the water over time just gets a bit grimy. On the other hand, if we focus solely on evangelism, we're like, right, we need to go out and we need to share this good news with other people. But we never allow the Spirit of God to work in us. We never read our Bibles and it conforms us to the image of Christ. We will be like a polluted stream. We're going to go out into the corners of the city sharing nothing that the city doesn't already know. But church, if we would allow the Spirit of God to work in us, conforming us to the image of Christ, bearing fruit in our lives, and if we allow the Spirit of God to work through us in power, sharing this good news, we will be, like Jesus said, like rivers of living water, nourishing this city, bringing life to this city, blessing this city, saving this city, quenching the desperate, desperate thirst of this city. Because what we have, Christ City, is good news. Church, that's the community we need to be. And if we're going to be these people, we need to be a people of faith. We need to be a people of faith, trusting on all that God has done in the past, trusting in the self-revelation of God in Christ in Scripture, sticking closely to what has been revealed to us of who God is and who, what God's character is, And also trusting in the hopes and the promises, holding fast to the hopes and the promises of all that God will accomplish. But also we need to right now, today, be expecting that God is moving among us. That Jesus, by his Spirit, still has work to do in us and through us. Jesus is alive and he is working today, church. He's building his kingdom. He's drawing people to himself And we, we get to participate in that here and now. Are we expecting that God will move?
I'm going to end with some practical things to say. (laughs) I want to be someone who lives by faith. I want to be a part of a community that lives by faith. Trusting in what God has done in the past, believing what God will do in the future, and participating here and now in what God is doing in this community and through this community. And if if you want to do that too, let me make a few suggestions. Number one, if, if you want God to work in you, here's some things you need to do. Number one, you need to be hearing God's word clearly. You need to be hearing God's word clearly. As I said, we don't get to make up who Jesus is or make up the commands that he's made about our lives. We get to see who Jesus is in Scripture, and we get to respond to what he has commanded us to do. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. If you don't have prayerful, devotional uh, time in the Bible in your life, let me encourage you, do that so that you can walk by faith. Secondly, you need to be part of a community. The Spirit of God works in the church. He moves in the church. If you are not evolved relationally in the church, if you are not participating in a community group or serving in some way, let me suggest that the Spirit of God might not have the right amount of opportunity in your life. <laughs> Just ending boldly. It's all right, I won't, I won't speak for another month. If you want God to work through you for others, first one, obvious, Alpha. Alpha is the place that we have in this church where we invite people who don't yet know Jesus to come and hear the good news of Jesus. If you have people in your life who don't know Jesus, who need to hear Jesus, you need to invite them. You need to be obedient to what the Spirit of God is prompting and to invite them along. Our world desperately needs this good news. Desperately. Second, 1018, we're starting a ministry where we get to uh, share the love of Jesus outside of our community. I want you to think about those who you know in your life who are in need right now. We're going to offer practical support for them, starting with food. People that are struggling financially, working poor, single parents, refugees. If you know someone in your life, this is a great way to extend the hospitality of God to them. If you know someone, reach out to Johan. Send him a message and say, I've got someone I want you to connect with. We'll go through the process and hopefully we can support them. Christ says, there is work to be done. Your salvation is secure. The work is finished on the cross. But we have a mandate to go out into the world and to share this good news with others. Would you stand as we respond?